It's the first Thursday of January 2020. And before we get started on this episode of the Unstoppable Rock podcast, a few notes on where you can see when particles collide in the coming months. We'll be in Greenville, South Carolina today. Tomorrow we'll be in Charleston, South Carolina, and then Columbia, South Carolina. On the 8th of January, we'll be in Awendaw, Green, South Carolina. And then we head down to Florida, where we'll be in Atlantic Beach on the 9th. We'll be in St. Augustine on the 12th. On the 17th and 18th, we'll be in Orlando, Florida. We'll be in Ocala on the 19th. We'll be in Miami on both the 23rd and the 24th. The 25th, we'll be at Deerfield Beach. On the 30th, we'll be in Gainesville. And on the 31st, we'll be in St. Petersburg, Florida. Looking ahead to February, we'll be in Tallahassee on the 1st, then Pensacola Bay on the 2nd. And then we've got dates in February in Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, and heading to Texas. Head over to whenparticlescollide.com and click on tour dates to see all the details. And now, on to the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Unstoppable Rock Podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Alcott. This is a podcast for anyone who makes, supports, loves, or is curious about the world of independent music and DIY touring. Here at the Unstoppable Rock Podcast, part of the Spirit of Rock Network, I sit down to talk with independent musicians, bookers, promoters, photographers, and engineers who are finding a way to make and support the music they love. We celebrate the weirdos, non-Nashville folkies, basement punk rockers, bedroom balladeers, indie rock purists, cassette tape swapping psychheads, perfect pop song chasers, hip-hop alchemists, hardcore or mathcore or post-whatever-core-just-happened kids, and everyone who has showed up and paid five bucks to see their favorite out-of-town band or artist sweat it out on a Wednesday. If you're part of this world or curious about this incredibly vibrant and creative subset of the music world, this podcast is for you. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Sasha Alcott, and along with my partner, Chris Feiner, we tour, write, record, and distribute our music under the name When Particles Collide. We met in the spring of 2010 in Bangor, Maine, when we were both cast in a production of Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Because we tour 40-plus weeks out of the year, we meet a lot of folks along the way. This is a podcast where I sit down and talk to some of our friends and colleagues about DIY music, their hometown, and feature new music that you've likely never heard before. Today, we're going to hear from my good friend, Pesha Mall. Pesha is the synthesizer player, programmer, vocalist, and sometimes percussionist for the Portland, Maine-based band Forget Forget. Pesha is also the registrar, an instructor in piano, synthesizer, and voice, as well as a mammoth rock chorus instructor for middle and high school students at the Maine Academy of Modern Music. Forget Forget is a self-described indie electropop duo from Portland, Maine, consisting of Pesha and her partner, Tyler. They like to say, if Max Martin produced a Beach House album, you get something close to our sound. Their debut album, We Are All, was released in September of 2013. Chris Busby from The Ballard says, People, this is poetry, the finest kind. What they've given us on this excellent debut album is quite a lot. If you give it a chance, you'll be listening to We Are All for many years to come. And my friend Emily Burnham from the Bangor Daily News has said, We Are All is an album that screams with as much joy as it weeps quietly in the corner. In 2015, they released a two-song EP entitled Two New Songs, and the band said, In these two songs, you can hear our first forays into using synths, but on the whole, our sound at this point in time is still rooted in more traditional keyboard, guitar, drum, and bass sounds. You're Not Gone is their second full-length album released in July of 2017. 
Since trimming down to a duo after their old bandmates moved on to new projects, they found a new sound in the use of analog and digital synths. I think it's important to note that all of these recordings were self-recorded. There is a strong sense of DIY that has been with this band since its inception. Although the sound and lineup has changed over the years, you'll hear more about Patia's strong sense of the DIY ethos throughout our interview. Finally, Patia and I are friends. We've known each other since 2012. I'm from a town that's about two hours north of Portland, Maine. But if you want to play independent original music in the state of Maine, Portland is the place to go. So when my band first formed, we worked really hard to play shows and meet musicians in Portland. This is how Patia and I first got to know each other. And since that time, we've played countless shows in Portland together. Forget Forget did, however, play in my hometown of Bangor, Maine in June 2013 when they performed at my wedding. Chris and I got married at the Bangor Opera House in downtown Bangor. We had a rock and roll wedding featuring our pals in the LA via Boston band Allowed, Patia's band Forget Forget, and yeah, my band played as well. A few notes about this interview before we get started. As you'll hear, Patia recently bought a house in Portland. She's got a beautiful back deck, and we couldn't resist sitting together out there in the lovely late August weather to enjoy some coffee and conversation. As a result, however, you might hear some faint background sounds of the great metropolitan outdoors. If you listen carefully, you'll hear Patia's roommate practicing guitar, a door opening, a siren followed by a helicopter, music coming from a few houses down, a neighbor or two yelling, some wind chimes, and finally, some or rather a lot of cicadas, which I really tried to EQ out, but they still managed to worm their way onto the tracks. Uh, If you're not familiar with the sound of cicadas in summer, uh, you're about to experience it. I don't think any of these sounds take away from the wonderful conversation we had together. So let's go ahead and get to it. Have you ever picked blueberries? Yes. It's backbreaking work. And it takes so long to just get enough to put in your bowl. Did you use a rake or did you pick by hand? Mm. I've done both. And they're both annoying. <laughs> because <laughs> uh, a rake, you end up with all the little twigs and stems and stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's still a lot of, you have to like pick through them afterwards, but if you're picking them by hand, then you just have to use your tiny, delicate fingers to get in there and pick tiny, delicate blueberries one at a time. They're so delicious though. They're so worth it. They really are. (laughs) For those of you who are unfamiliar, native Maine blueberries are, uh, very small and a little more tart, I guess, than a big, Mm. are they? No, more, they're sweeter. Are more, they sweeter? But they have more like complex flavor. They have more say. blueberry flavor. They're more blueberry than other ones. Aside from talking about Maine and its many fruits and uh, food offerings, I did want to talk to you today a little bit about a few things. One uh, is the thing that we share in common. We're, we're both high school teachers mm-hmm. and now we're not. So I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about how you made that decision and like what that was like and... Because it's hard to go from, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, you know. I, I had a great teaching gig. I taught high school Spanish at an independent school, and my colleagues were great. My students were awesome, and I was fully in charge of my own program. And as a teaching gig goes, it was awesome. And I was always like, if I ever leave, it's not going to be for another classroom teaching job, like. I'm not interested in like starting over to another school. If I leave, it'll be because I'm taking a step to go do something else. 
And as the years went on and I was doing more and more music, I started kind of making forays into like, oh, what would it be like to actually try to make money doing something musically related besides just playing original music? I connected with some kids at a recording studio one day when I, I can't even remember why I was there, why I happened to be there. <laughs> um, and there were just some kids like on a job shadowing thing from a high school. There was a sound engineer like trying to explain to them what they did at the studio and what, you know, and I found myself kind of being interpreter between like adult with technical knowledge and high school kids. Yep. <laughs> because they speak, they're a specific, yep. Yeah. They're a specific crew. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> And um, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. And then I had the opportunity to like have a student and that was really fun. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. I should, you know, I have some friends who have taught uh, at this music school giving lessons. I should look into that, see if maybe I could give some lessons there. And so I connected with my now boss. Jeff Shaw at Maine Academy of Modern Music and I was like hi I'm Pesha and I realized <laughs> as I was writing my qualifications for being an instructor <laughs> that my whole life has just been accruing skills <laughs> to add to this resume that you know is just all about teaching music so on the music side of things I can play like tons of different instruments and tons of different styles and I have my music theory background and I majored in ethnomusicology which like is not a an applicable thing necessarily except that it teaches you how to think about music in a, in a cultural context and on the other hand I had all the experience working with high school kids and was like all right this is this is the job for me and so I started just with some lessons and I did some camps over the summer and the then as I started to get more students, I started to think about like, well, maybe I can transition away from classroom teaching, which as much as I loved it, I've never really been a morning person. <laughs> oh my God. Same. We share that. So I uh, had the opportunity to take a big step away from that by doing a combination of some administrative stuff for the music school and also a whole bunch of teaching and I took it and it felt great. And how does it feel not to grade? Not to amazing. <laughs> like it's all the best parts of teaching, which, you know, connecting with kids, kids yeah. and trying to like pass on your passion about something. And you're always learning when you teach. Yes. Um, especially when kids are bringing you bands and artists that you like, Oh, who's that? Golly gosh, gee, I don't feel young anymore. <laughs> no, we're not young anymore. <laughs> but it kind of, you know, it keeps you in the game, just knowing what's going on when 10-year-olds or whoever is like, I heard this cool song and I want to learn it. Um, and it also feels amazing to have like a fairly balanced workload throughout the year and not be like totally unplugged in the summer but then insane for the other nine months right. of the year i don't think a lot of folks really understand like when you're teaching you're teaching you're busy throughout the day and throughout the night and throughout the weekend and you might get you know five or six hours on a saturday to yourself but you know then sunday you're you're prepping and you're grading and every night you've got whether you're inputting grades or writing a college essay or mm -hmm. preparing for a meeting or sometimes just thinking about 
your kids and what you need to do differently the next day. It's yeah. really, it's pretty overwhelming. Submitting grades goes and on it, and, and on. it never, it never ends no. is the thing. I mean, until grades are submitted at the end of June and you have that last faculty meeting and you can unplug, but you're never, you're always like, Oh, I should, well, I responded to this email and I prepped this lesson, but I should really be thinking ahead to this and I should yeah. really be making this new like worksheet on blah, 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 blah. Or exactly. I should be like contacting this parent or, you know, it just, it's never done and yeah. it's exhausting and it, and it doesn't leave any, or it doesn't leave a lot of room for creative energy yeah. outside of that. And it also, I, I know for myself personally, I always felt kind of like an irresponsible I felt a level of irresponsibility as a teacher when I would spend so much time with music, mm. you know, and it really shouldn't be that way. You should be able to have a hobby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. All, like yeah. a passion. And that's like, neither of us even have kids. Right. Let alone, you know, yeah. so it's Well, like, I, I started to think about music as my baby. Yeah. Like all my other colleagues have families and mm-hmm. they go and they unplug for a certain amount of time over the weekend or whatever to spend time with their families as they should and yeah so if i'm unplugging for a period of time to to work on my craft and my creative passion like yeah then if it fills that role and i shouldn't it took me like many years of personal work to to not kind of feel that guilt <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. but I mean, done right, like teaching should be an all-in commitment, and it's kind of the problem. It there's a structural problem with the way that teaching is set up, where it's an expectation that for the most part people are just kind of walking in, imparting subject matter, grading, whatever, walk home at the end of the day. It's not like that. It's, it's not like that at no. all. No, <laughs> especially in the digital age when people can reach you anytime and you have yep. to respond and. You have concerns from students, concerns from parents, concerns from teachers, you know, just lots of stuff to follow up on always. And I think, you know, not to make this a conversation solely about education, but I I think a lot of the changes are are good, you know, that we're really looking at, you know, there are IEPs, individual education plans for students, and you're looking at differentiated instruction, so trying to present material in a variety of ways to reach a lot of different learners. And I, I think a lot of the things that are going on in education are positive for students, but the structure of teaching, you know, one teacher, 25 to 35 kids, mm-hmm. or in a private school, maybe 15, um, and the way that the, the day is structured, you know, sort of starting at 7.30 or 8 and going till 3 with classes, then meetings, and sp- the way it's structured does not give teachers the ability to adjust to the sort of new demands you know Mm -hmm. if every classroom had two instructors Mm -hmm. well that would be one way that you could actually get all that stuff done or if the class loads half as much yes exactly and you actually had time in your day for grading and prepping and meeting with students Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and not trying to shove it in you know, before class or after soccer practice for 10 (laughs) minutes before mom picks, you know, the whole thing. Um, So you, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, talking about music and your passion and working on things while you were a Spanish high school instructor. Uh, When I first met you, you were playing, I believe it's violin, not viola, right? Violin. You were playing violin in a seven piece, seven piece band, indie chamber pop ish so (laughs) and now it's still the same band but it's essentially at its core a duo and you're Mm -hmm. mostly focused on synthesizers and programmed stuff Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i don't even know how to talk about it but (laughs) and you saw i know and you're you are also in this band with your partner so of course i love talking about that but um (laughs) 
do you want to maybe talk us through a little bit about that evolution of that band yeah. in particular? Because yeah. I think that's your main musical project. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yep. And how that came to be and the change. You bet. <laughs> you bet. So I can take you all the way back to, okay, I'm in my late 30s now. So if we go back to my mid-20s, mid to late 20s, I wasn't playing music. I was teaching and I was just working all the time. I was like, I've always wanted to learn to fiddle. Why haven't I done that? And so I picked up the fiddle and I waited until my partner at the time was, he was on a three week trip out of the country so that I could just squeak away on the violin and not torture anyone too much. <laughs> I forgot that we also have that in common. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Sorry, do go on. <laughs> So, yeah, so I started having a lot of fun, like, learning Irish tunes on the fiddle, and then I had a friend, and I, my other friend lent me her grandmother's violin, and so my friend in town in Portland, I was like, hey, can I stop by and just show you? I'm so excited. And she was like, sure, I'm at band practice, but come on over. And um, band practice was this crew of ladies called Ramblin' Red, and they were not particularly serious about um, music, I guess, in in terms of, like, you know, they weren't, like, writing albums and, like, doing all the social media, everything. It was just they got together once a week, and they played, and they had fun, and they sounded great, and and then I stopped by with my friends, other friends' grandmother's violin and and jammed with them. They're like, you should join our band. So that was at the time I was living out of town, forty five minutes out of town, and this that was my first time like connecting with musicians at Portland. You know, once you make one connection with one musician in a town, it just over the years leads to many many other connections. And so as a result of that, I ended up meeting a girl that played cello, and she had connected with Tyler. Uh, of forget 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 music.com everyone i haven't updated the website in over a year it's okay we'll give a full uh we'll be a full uh, array of plugs at the end of the podcast um so she uh this cellist had connected with tyler who similarly had moved like into town and didn't know a lot of people and was looking for ways to connect with the musicians and he volunteered at a program at long creek youth development center I think songwriting with kids. Um, So they knew each other from that. And this guy, Tyler, was putting together a show with his band. His band was called Gin Lab. And um, they were going to be covering Arcade Fire's album Funeral. Um, And they needed some extra string players. And so I got a call. I might still have the message safe somewhere. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> but it was basically like, hi, my name is Tyler DeVos, and I got your name from Joanna Thrall, and I'm looking for some string players to do this show, and I thought, uh, she thought you might be a great person to hop on, and so give me a call. And I called him back in roughly the amount of time it takes to listen to the album. <laughs> I was like, I'm in, this is awesome. And we did that show, we worked really hard on it, it was really fun. Uh, there were some great people involved with that. And the end came and Tyler asked his band, he was like, that was really cool playing with all those awesome people. Let's keep collaborating. And they're like, no, we're good. It's just a dude band of like five guys. Let's, let's pass. So Tyler's like, okay, that's fine. We'll, we'll keep jamming, but I'm going to start another project. And he had been sitting on a lot of lyric material. He was working with adults with mental illness, mostly schizophrenia, who 
were awesome and he had been working with them quite a while and had, you know, great connections with them and all that. And sometimes they would kind of go off the rails a little bit. They would decompensate, it's called, and um, say just crazy stuff. I don't mean crazy as like a, a judgmental term. I mean like, whoa, that's so insane. Like that kind of crazy. Yeah. Where, you know, from somewhere in their minds, like these things were being drawn together that most of us wouldn't put together. And so he had just been keeping like sticky notes of things that his clients had sort of come up with said in passing or whatever and um started to kind of put together these these characters in in song or channel some of the things that these people had said and wanted to put a band together to make a concept album around that so forget forget was born and he wanted it to be giant he wanted it to be like broken social scene or something like that where it's just this big collective of awesome talented people and you can do strings and you can do horns and everything else and it ended up being uh, seven, which in comparison to something like Broken Social Scenes, a little bit smaller, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but we had the whole rhythm section plus two strings. Um, and then a, a guy, sort of the wild card guy who was McKay, who was doing guitar and a little little keyboard synth kind of thing and a little banjo. It was, he was all over the place. Did, um, we, did I ever tell you about the time that we were playing at this coffee shop? It was like a Sunday and we were playing this coffee shop in Boulder, Colorado, and it was like a... Oh my gosh, yeah, you did. Yeah, and we, <laughs> so it was like a low-key, like, playing for tips kind of thing. We were in Colorado already anyway, so it was no big deal. And we are like, well, this might not be a great gig, but let's just, we'll just do it. And we'll just play a few songs and see, see what happens. Um, acoustic. And we roll up, and there's a sound person actually uh, dedicated for this venue. And there's McKay. And we were like, what the heck? It was so crazy. But anyway, yeah. back to back to forget, forget. Yeah. <laughs> it's a small town even when you leave your small town, yeah, right? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. <laughs> so we made this album, and we were all like super committed to this album, and it was amazing. We had all this momentum. Uh, we did a Kickstarter and raised a bunch of money to go mix our album professionally um, up in Montreal with the guy who had actually mixed Arcade Fire's first album. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I think people were kind of like, wow, that was really intense and started one by one, just sort of McKay was the first one who moved on. And then we were six and then we were five and then we were four um, over the course of a couple of years. And every time we kept kind of retooling these songs that we'd been playing, we were writing some new ones as well, but um, we we just kept kind of retooling Yep. and trying to fill in all that space that we had been able to fill when we had that many different sounds in the band. And, I, my, the first instrument I ever took lessons on was piano when I was, I was like ask, six years so, old. Yeah. yeah, your sort of history yeah. with music, because obviously you're in your early 20s or mid 20s and you're taking up fiddle. fiddle. Yeah. But there has to be something yeah, before yeah, that. Yeah, so yeah. before that, I, you know, I was a kid taking piano lessons and I joined jazz band in high school and I picked up a little guitar and a little bass and I got really into steel drums we had a steel band at my high school, and then that led me in college down a whole path of the ethnomusicology thing. And I was really in—I was really into steel drums for a while. But piano, keyboard is the thing that I'm most comfortable on by far, and the thing that I can actually have fun on when I play. When you're when you're playing the wrong instrument for you, you—it's really hard to have fun. It's really hard to loosen up and yep. get out of your own head. And I experienced that I didn't know what that feeling was because I hadn't done a lot of performing in a band band setting 
And I was just like, oh, I'm nervous. Why? You know, because I'm nervous, right? But it turned out that I, that violin is not actually the thing that I'm meant to play in a band. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm really not that good at it. Like, I'm not good enough to loosen up and have fun, right? Right, right, right. So, um, as we were writing the songs, I was like, oh, I'd love to put some keyboard parts on this. We didn't have another keyboard player in the band. And I ended up buying a nice keyboard and then more and more was kind of shifting in that direction. And then as people started leaving the band and we were trying to still have a big sound, that's when I turned to synthesizers and it's not something I had ever considered and I didn't know anything about, but I am the kind of person who really wants to know for myself how everything works. And I want to be able to fix a problem if I know what the problem is. And I, you know, like I want to be able to get the moss off my own roof. Yeah. (laughs) Same. Right. (laughs) Like I want to climb up there and I want to do it. And I want to limb the tree that's making that moss happen. And I want to replace the outlets in my kitchen with GFCI outlets. Like I don't want to pay someone to do that. Right. So like kind of the ethos of like, DIY, figure it out, like watch some YouTube videos and just learn how to do stuff um, is where I came to synthesizers Yeah, from. Born kind of out of necessity or the feeling of necessity anyway of wanting to fill in some sonic space in our songs as our bandmates were leaving. And then also of I want to own this. I want to be really good at this. There's a certain amount of like I get a lot of pride and, and also just pleasure and excitement out of like rolling up my sleeves and figuring something out. So since were a really fun challenge, my first one was a monophonic, meaning you can only play one, <laughs> one note, note at a time, time right? That's Maybe. like, we basically now have all my understanding of synthesizers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> monophonic and polyphonic. Yep. Something about attack, decay, sustain, and release, which yep. I still don't really understand. Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, we could do a whole other lesson sometime okay. if you want. But so, yeah, so my first synth was this little yellow synth called a mofo made by Dave Smith Instruments. And anyone listening to this podcast who is into synths is going to be like, oh, yeah, that one. So, it's great for bass lines. It's great for lead lines, as all monophonic synths are. I really wanted a polyphonic synth, but those are very, very expensive. I ended up buying one that was like 15 years old. So in that sweet spot between vintage and new, right? Gotcha. Like it was just old enough that no one really cared about it, but it wasn't old enough where people were like, Fetishizing oh my God, it's it. so rare. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. So I got a virus, a virus B. That's the name of the synthesizer. That's not something that happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> And this whole like world opened up because I could make any sound I wanted and it was amazing. And I had so much fun figuring out how to make these like giant pad sounds and shimmery sparkly sounds and playing with delay and getting the delay like clocked right in at the right, you know, BPM and the right subdivision of the B oh, and everything you else. It right and, uh, yeah. I nerded it so hard, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then that I kind of stuck with that for a while and that was great and that those are the sounds that are all over our second album so by the time we were down to just a duo everyone else had been like you know we're moving on like some of it was was just like stylistically people were ready to move on but a lot of it is just people they commit to a project it's really intense we were nobody's paid to play original music we were just hopping in the car and driving to New York and Boston and Montreal and being like please crash on people's floors. Don't expect to shower. Oh, and play the best set you've ever played. And that's hard. It's hard to sustain that, especially if you don't maybe feel like it's your 
project. And as much as we were all writing our own parts and arranging the thing, the songs together, like fundamentally at the beginning was Tyler's project. And then at a certain point it became clear that like I was the partner in crime on that. Yeah. And we were driving the writing of the songs and everything else. People moved on and now I totally lost my train of thought. Here no, we are. It, we're a duo. That's <laughs> where we are. We're a yeah, duo. Yeah. And we rolled with that. We I started pre-programming beats because we're we were like pretty heartbroken after our our you know, our bandmates moved on. It's like it being in a seven way relationship. Yep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's very you know, you love everybody and at the same time it's complicated and you're like, Oh well this person needs to be approached in this way and that person we need to talk to in this other way and blah blah blah. Anyway, it's tense, we loved them. We still they're all amazing and we still have a great time together. But we were sad after they left and we were like, We're not ready to, to open ourselves up to that heartbreak again for a while, so let's really retool as a duo. Because yeah. we know neither of us are going anywhere. Started programming beats and made backing tracks with the extra synth parts that I couldn't play and the beats in them. And we would perform as a duo. And we went on like that for a while. And we really like owned the material that way. And I think that's when the band became a synth pop explosion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're actually back to playing with our old drummer, which is so awesome. We love him. And we have another guy helping us out sometimes on like extra synth and guitar parts. And it feels so good. Like the thing I was saying before about how when you're playing the right instrument, you can yeah. really have fun. Like this feels like a lineup where I, I'm still doing a lot. Like I'm still playing a couple of synthesizers and I'm singing and I'm triggering a backing track. But being freed up from the whole drum programming thing and and the sound of program drums mm -hmm. and actually having a live drummer is really 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 awesome and i have so much fun now when we play and the last this has been since like late spring maybe that we've been in this lineup so like six months or something i know you guys months. played a show i know because it was the same night as us uh <laughs> last time we were in town it wasn't like June mm, and you yeah. guys were at Port City Port, uh, Port City okay. yeah yep and uh, was that Would you have yeah we had the the other two folks with us great we even had a friend jump on do do extra vocals on a song and it just was it's like the most fun I've ever had playing live music it, it strikes me as you're, you're talking about you know that thing when you have an independent band that's not generating a lot of income which mm -hmm. I think is most independent bands and you want a, an ensemble, a large ensemble, uh, figuring out what the show schedule, the tour schedule, the recording projects look like to accommodate the kind of flexibility and just like this sort of open door policy of like, if you can play with us, that would be great. And mm -hmm. if you can't, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Letting that go a little bit of maybe what your own your own ambitions would be with the project versus what your ensemble can actually reasonably and feasibly do mm -hmm. M must be hard to, to find that. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes, I mean like a lot of stuff in being in an independent band that has any iota of ambition. It's a lot of work. Right. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so for example, I mean our band, like where we're running backing tracks, that means that, depending on the lineup if we're a duo if we're a trio with a drummer or if we have that fourth guy helping out on guitar and synth that means like three different sets of backing tracks for each song yeah and that means i'm so we record ourselves like i'm you know 
fluent in pro tools and all that but it means like essentially like doing a different mix of each backing track right making sure that it's like kind of like mastered light <laughs> you know just like then i have to put them all into one session i have to put all the backing tracks into one session and make sure the levels are consistent so do we're not you, going from do you run ableton when you do no, your live stuff or are you just no. it's all so you mix it all down yeah. depending on the configuration of the yeah. musicians that are live and then you play that one track that's exactly. already pre-mixed okay yep. gotcha yep. i don't really want to perform with a computer i mean all the gear i have is already like a lot of stuff can go wrong when you're using <laughs> <laughs> you're using pedals and you're using a mixer and you're using synthesizers. There's just like a lot of places for things to go off the rails in that signal chain. And I don't want to add a computer to that. And yeah. I also just I'm not personally super into the kind of disconnect between you and your audience if you're behind a screen. Yeah. And we I know, get enough of that just in, in daily yeah, right? life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't want to be looking over at a screen and being like, am I on the right session? Okay, I press play. Oh, is it going to the right thing right now? Ah, oh, it's not working. Oh, is it the power supply? Oh, is my computer just dead? Like, no, <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I, feel, I mean, we don't play with yet. Uh, we don't play with backing <laughs> tracks yet, but I feel that, like that. Yeah. Yep. And it goes back to, like, playing the instrument you're most comfortable with. Like, mm -hmm. when you're playing live, you want to be as relaxed as possible so you mm -hmm. can give you can give everything that you have mm -hmm. and that your your sort of psychic energy isn't caught up in the technicality yeah. of either what you're physically playing or the technicality of like your gear yeah you yeah. know you just want to give everything you have to the audience mm -hmm. and the songs you know mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think one of the the compliments that's resounded with me the most is i've had like a lot of people tell me, wow, you're doing so much up there, but you make it look so easy. Yeah. That to me is like, great. I've gotten past that wall of worrying about all the gear and worrying about all my parts, making sure I'm coming in at the right time and I'm not flat, <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. And the fact that I can just do that stuff and not think about it too much and just have fun and perform and be into the songs and have a good time with my bandmates and like grin at the audience. That's one of those little things where you're like, okay, making it means a lot of different things these days. He sure does. But that's a thing where I'm like, that's a personal benchmark where I'm like, all right. Okay. Yeah. I'm really proud of that. <laughs> yeah. 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 To be, to be proud of what you're doing is really an incredible thing. Somewhere out there in the internet world, there's a quote from Ira Glass who started This American Life, you mm -hmm. know, on um, NPR. And he says something I'm going to paraphrase, but people get into the arts because they have an aesthetic mm -hmm. but for the longest time what you are trying to do and your aesthetic there's a gap there's a gap between those two things like what you're actually making and what you wish you were making you know mm -hmm. and sometimes you might think you're hitting it but you know you're not really and then there are those moments where you make something or you perform something or create something and it begins to match what your aesthetic is mm -hmm. and you know that could be in a live performance or in a studio setting but that feeling when you can really uh, you know and that's really what pride is right it's love it's mm -hmm. this love of this thing that you made and it's mm -hmm. is really like an incredible feeling mm -hmm. yeah 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 I know I am familiar with that quote I yeah. think maybe you shared it at some point. I probably I did. It, it, yeah. Because <laughs> I was like, I was like yes. oh my God, I've been staring over that gulf my whole life. Right? <laughs> you keep pushing and you keep working on this thing because you love it and you want to, like I'm a perfectionist as maybe a lot of us 
in this game are. I don't want to put something out that doesn't sound like me. Yeah. And sometimes if I look back at the things that I've put out over the last, starting with Ramblin' Red. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was, that was hard for me because I knew I wasn't that good a fiddle player. And I had to kind of let it go and be like, this is a really great representation of where I am right now. And, um, and I'm going to keep moving on. I'm going to keep moving forward and getting better at my instrument and better at songwriting and everything else. And it's amazing now to get to the point where we can be writing songs and performing songs. And I'm like, this is, this is it. This is a jam. This is a baller. This is so fun. And I'm all over this. Like, yeah. this song would not be the song without me. And I feel great about my parts and great about my execution of them and great about the arrangement decisions. And yeah, that's awesome. It's really fun. That's an amazing feeling. Okay, there's one thing that I want to address right up front. As you heard Pesha describe, the lyrical content of the 2013 Forget Forget album, We Are All, contains direct quotes from some of the adults with mental disabilities with whom Tyler, the main vocalist of the band, worked. At the time of the album's release, there were folks who felt like this work was an appropriation of content based on a relationship with an unequal power dynamic. At the same time, the job of an artist is to listen, to observe, and then to draw connections and synthesize ideas where before there were only disparate pieces. So in some ways, Tyler saw the beauty and larger truth in the quotes from his clients and made that into art. I'm not trying to put forth an argument either way, but I think it's important to recognize the ethical complexities of this early work since Pesha spoke about the album in detail. But let's get back to the main blueberries. Okay, they're small, maybe a fifth the size of grocery store blueberries. They're more flavorful, but they take a very long time to harvest and it's labor intensive no matter how you do it. Oh. And they will only grow in certain climates and their season is very short. So why do we pick them anyway? Because the small, rare, well-earned thing that isn't commercially available everywhere is precious and so delicious that we just must seek it out. Listening to Pesha reflect on her musical journey, starting with piano lessons then through high school, college, and throughout her 20s and into her 30s, I'm struck by how much hard work she's put into developing her craft and individual style. And how that craft has not been focused on one individual instrument or one particular facet of being a musician. She's learned multiple new instruments, learned how to use recording software, learned more about songwriting and arranging, developed the skills and experience to handle teaching both individual students and large groups of teenagers. Part of her hard work over the years is something that we all do but don't always acknowledge, which is learning what not to do. In my blueberry analogy, this is picking out the stems and the leaves. Learning what we don't want to do is so incredibly important. It's easy to fetishize the prodigy, the young chanteuse, who blows us away with her talent and old soul in a young body. But there's something to the slow burn of the artist who tries out many things and whose success is having the most fun they've ever had. You don't fit the expectation. There was one other thing that I sort of had on my list earlier in the podcast. You mentioned being from Portland, just to clarify, mm, it's Portland, Portland, Maine. Maine. <laughs> and, you know, we've been playing together 
playing shows together for like six years maybe even seven seven years maybe. maybe yeah like a long time yeah and I would be curious to hear what you feel like it has changed over the years about the Portland music community what's great like what's working really well mm. what's vibrant and exciting and yeah. You know, maybe some of the things that have changed, and maybe you know we need to mourn their, <laughs> yeah, know, the fact they're not there. Or, yeah, because you know every town's different. But if you, well, I, I think the thing that also can be tricky about trying to take a bird's eye view on a music scene is I change along with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I don't go out to shows the way that I used to. Like I just bought a house. I I'm like up on a Saturday <laughs> night painting the bathroom. You know, like. <laughs> It looks great, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not I'm not on the scene in the same way. And at the same time, I feel more connected to it than ever because I know more people who yeah. are making music in this town. I mean, I think that's fair, too. Like yeah. your own personal Yeah. Yeah. Change. So we used to play a lot. Now we play less because with just two of us, we don't do as much booking. But we used to play pretty regularly, and the place where you and I, Sasha, first played together <laughs> is no longer there. Oh, I know, I know. Yeah, so a, like an awesome little venue called Slancha, where a lot of bands kind of came up on the scene in that era. Yep. And uh, we were one of those bands. I don't know what your history prior to that in Portland was, but... Our first show in Portland was at Slancha. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and some other bands, I think Volcano Rabbit. Tyler and I were talking last night and, and he mentioned them in the context of Slancha. Yeah. Um, and that right there, if we just look at that little microcosm, that's a great example because Volcano Rabbit, some of those members are still playing in bands, but their lead singer who, I mean, we might cry as we talk about this, but he, he's gone. Yeah. We lost him a couple of years ago and actually forget forget we played at his like memorial concert <laughs> as, as did we <laughs> yep <laughs> one of the many shows we've done together many many the other guys in that band i don't think are super active right now uh playing music the venue itself is gone our band has changed you know at that point we were the the big seven piece band and now our now our two piece that doesn't play as often but when we do play it's super fun and we have a great time but you know our ambition has changed we're not we're not booking out of town we're not trying to push ourselves in that same way yeah. um and you guys are on the road 300 days a year oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah and you put out how many albums too many. you know <laughs> too many we put out too many so even like looking at that little thing like some things change in a way where people are growing and they're rocking it on hashtag unstoppable rock right <laughs> yeah <laughs> and sometimes things change and it's super sad you know a venue closes yeah. that like fomented awesome bands and people pass away and voices are lost and change is inevitable and in a town like portland where a lot of us on the scene know each other yeah um that change can feel really painful sometimes um but at the same time you know i just we did a show last weekend at um a newish venue slash practice space called santiki studios yep. which i think is now it's filling that um role of all ages venue oh, that's which great. comes and goes in this town there's never a consistent place where kids can go see music yep um and it's such an important part that venue chain yeah <laughs> you know from like tiny little bar where you can play to five people all the way up to you know state theater or um 
one of the big venues that's going to draw a big touring act. Like you need venues that are filling all those niches along the way. And in Portland, one thing that's come and gone and often not been present is, is a place for kids to go see music. And so Santiki's filling that role right now. And I really, really hope that that, you know, is financially successful and they can yeah. continue to do that. I think if there's an 18 year old on the scene right now and you ask them in 10 it's, years, yeah, they're going to look at Santiki and be like, oh, that was a place where I blah, blah, blah. I yeah. saw all these great shows and met all these great people. And, you know, what happens yeah. by the time they're 30? I don't know. I don't know. You bring, you bring up uh, like a couple interesting things. One is as we grow and change and get older, I think it's sometimes easy for us to make generalizations about the scene or about the state of music or the business or whatever you want to say. But you know, and I'll hear a lot of folks say, like, people just don't come out to shows like they used to. And I'm like, well, you know, you are 40 years old and your <laughs> your peer group has houses and kids and yeah. they're not and they're going tired. out to shows. And they're tired. Yeah. And, you know, you have no idea what the 22-year-olds are doing. Right. We, we have no... I mean, I get somewhat of an idea here and there across the country, but really, you know, we need to be careful when we sort of... Ju- make judgments like that because really it's us who are changing Mm -hmm. and yes it's different but you know the the young folks are still doing Mm -hmm. things and they'll never stop it might look different than when we were in our 20s but they're still sort of doing things and then the other thing that I I don't know why I never really thought of it this way but mentioning Slancha that that venue where we all sort of came up it's like at the time I didn't feel like I was part of something Mm. I felt this overwhelming feeling that I didn't belong anywhere, that I wasn't Mm -hmm. part of a scene, that Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, that my band was not successful, was not popular, was not, didn't have any sort of foothold anywhere. I Mm -hmm. felt very, like, not connected. But in retrospect, when I think about those shows at Slancha with Gin Lab and with you guys and with Volcano Rabbit, Mm. like, we had something very special. We, We had a thing. Yeah. And yeah. it's sort of, you know, we were hanging out last night and Tyler, your partner, was talking about the bartenders and, mm-hmm. you know, some drama with the bartenders. And, <laughs> you know, and I, I I just there were so many times, you know, at Slancha like that, mm-hmm. where it was also a place where if we were passing through town, we could stop in at mm-hmm. the bar and, mm-hmm. you know, and hang out and feel at home. And it's sort of like, oh, wow. That was a thing. Yeah. And we all belonged yeah, yeah. to it. And you don't see it at the time. You, you know? Don't, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think I, I did. I know, like, for me, like, those early days of Forget Forget, again, just kind of being, like, in my own head and, and not having the confidence that I do now. And that's yeah. the that's the best thing about getting older on the music scene <laughs> or in, in general <laughs> in life is just, like, the there's no way to become a self-assured at peace with yourself kind of person besides getting out there and having the experiences that teach you those little things moment to moment where all of a sudden five years go by and you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm a, I'm a really different person than I was not in like a core value kind of way, but like I'm no longer hampered by my anxieties about X, Y, or Z, you know? Right. So yeah, I yeah, I wonder what the eighteen-year-olds think and if they feel like they're part of something. You know, <laughs> I, I hope they do. I really hope they do. What you know, we'll 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 see. You know, I hope that I still get to hang out with them when I'm when I'm in my fifties, which you will always be cool. <laughs> 
Well, I'll always probably play music one way or the other. <laughs> I'll probably show up. <laughs> I have to say, though, like, you know, my interactions personally with young folks has just been so, so, so positive. Mm-hmm. And I feel like among the trailblazers of the youth in this country, you know, there's a lot of really positive work breaking down all kinds of barriers and pigeonholing and and compartmentalization of people like Mm -hmm. i think it's really it's exciting there'll always be a youth against you know the older people because we didn't do enough when we were young you know (laughs) (laughs) and i was reminded just recently i was like when i was born i'm pretty sure women couldn't get their own mortgage oh my god like in the 70s i was born in the early 70s so i'm pretty sure like banks didn't give women mortgages yeah Yep. At the time. Yep. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and now I got my own mortgage. I know. Now the and boys rent from boys you. two boys paying me rent. <laughs> As it should be. As it should be. One of the things that I want to do at the end of each episode is to play a song mm. by mm-hmm. an artist. If I happen to be interviewing a musician, share it with our audience and you know, have you talk about it a little bit and then play it at the end. Yeah. Do you have one in mind? Yeah. Can you, can well, I, okay. And it's funny too, because over the course of our conversation, I changed my mind. Did you? So okay, I was good. initially going to have us listen to a song that um, we put out in 2017. And it's a song that I wrote beginning to end. It's my song. It's my lyrics. It's, you know, everything else, which is in our band. Tyler's the primary lyricist. Um, so the song was seashells. I still like perform it, love it, have a great time. And it feels authentic to me. But when I listen back to the recording, my voice sounds really different to me now. It sounds more timid. And I think what I actually want to do is I was talking about like the joy that I feel now in performing and in the parts that I'm writing is listen to a song that we put out eight months ago. There's video for it. That's the only way we can, it's on YouTube. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's called Couldn't Matter Less. So my role in that song is more as a ranger, part writer, adding vocal harmonies, that sort of thing. And I did, I did write the drums for that, but Tyler, you know, that's his, it's his song, it's his lyrics. So yeah, that's the song I would like to share. Couldn't matter less. And what's the reason for changing? Just because you're really proud of all of the work. And it feels more like me now. The recording feels more like me now. Gotcha. And I think it, it just reflects, like I said, the that joy and that confidence that I've felt with music in the last like couple of years whereas if I go back to that I mean seashells is it's fundamentally about like seasonal affective disorder (laughs) (laughs) and it's a fun song it's a jam it's a party but it's just a different thing yeah so let's go with the joy let's go with it I'm all for the joy that's awesome thanks so much Keisha thanks for talking yeah thanks for having me this is really fun very cool oh thanks for letting us be on your back porch oh it's so nice here it really is nice my darling I see your eyes looking now never in There's a book that came out this past year. In fact, I was given a copy this past Christmas by my brother-in-law. It's all about the New York City music scene in the early 2000s. The times, bands, and places this book explores are places I played and bands I played with. It even features people I dated. I had my own band at this time, 
It was called Sasha Elcott and the Possibilities. But no one really came out to see us play. It's been a strange experience seeing the publicity campaign around this book, hearing interviews associated with the book on some of my favorite podcasts, seeing friends' social media posts about book signings and events, knowing that I wasn't really part of what happened, but I was peripherally there, watching things happen for and to other people. And in some ways, I've seen it happen again. As I mentioned, I did a weekend of made-up shows with Ali Spaltrow of Lady Lamb back in 2009. She's currently on tour with the new pornographers. I've played shows with the royalty of Maine Music currently, both with the ghost of Paul Revere and Weekend Friends. But I often feel like I'm struggling, like I'm watching other people do great things, and perhaps I'm not listening to the signs that what I have to offer really isn't all that great. But sitting down with Patia, I was reminded that I was part of something important, and I am part of something important. Just by showing up, spending time in our rooms with the doors shut, making something out of nothing, making songs, parts, melodies, harmonies, beats, and chord changes come from the inner workings of our mind. That's something important. And going to the shows, showing up, being there for other musicians, that's really something important too. And when joy is created, what else could be more important? What is more sweet than the joy of something created with honest hard work? picking out the stems and leaves, and enjoying something bursting with goodness. Maybe it only happens during one season. Maybe there's not much growing on the branch. But hey, why wouldn't we go for the good stuff anyway? Thanks so much for this interview, Pesha. It was a real pleasure. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Before we listen to the Forget Forget song, Couldn't Matter Less, a few bits of business. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And do tell a friend about the Unstoppable Rock podcast. We'd love to have you help spread the word on our endeavor here. And as far as my band goes, we'd love for you to give us a follow over at Spotify, Instagram, or Facebook. Just look for When Particles Collide. Or you can go to patreon.com and search for When Particles Collide. Uh, Patreon is a platform that allows folks to directly support artistic endeavors that they think are cool and worthwhile. And if you go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search for When Particles Collide, you can get new songs, uh, essays, videos, and advanced copies of this podcast um, there as part of the perks we give to our supporters. Remember, your new favorite band or artist is somewhere in a town you've never been to, making songs that have nothing to do with fulfilling a record contract. So let's spread the word. Let's help each other be a little more unstoppable. And now here is Forget Forget Song, Couldn't Matter Less. Enjoy, and we'll see you next time. I thought of the last time of the last time we spoke again It's so obvious to me now To me now what I should have said Now there's really nothing left for me to confess We're living in the future and it I went to 
the end I went. 